Hello and welcome. This is Karen Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, where inspiration and possibility meet on 95.7 FM KDRT. I believe there are many ways to live life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us. With this show, I hope you can see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibilities. I invite you into the space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really, ask yourself that. Join me each week for inspiration, empowerment, and entertainment. And you can connect with me on my website at www.howshereallydoesit.com. There are links there to my Facebook page and to Twitter. You can also send me an email. I love getting listeners' emails. And you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter. In 2003, Patty Dye's entire life changed. Her stepfather was diagnosed with lung cancer. He died 37 days later. And that experience led Patty to a renewed commitment to ask herself every morning, what would I be doing today? if I only had 37 days to live. Patty is the author of several books, including the bestseller, Life is a Verb. Patty's here to discuss how we can live an extraordinary life from the ordinary. Hello and welcome, Patty. Hi, thanks for having me on. I love your show, and it's just a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Thank you for being here. It's really a pleasure to have you. And you have such a great voice, Corinne, let me just say that, that I just want you to read the phone book to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's just gorgeous. It's so soothing. I want you to talk to me in times of crisis. <laughs> well, you can call me anytime. Thank uh, you. <laughs> now I have your number. <laughs> yes, you have my numbers. You have lots of ways to contact me. So, so Patty, um, you know, for those... Many people know you, but let's do a real quick synopsis about the 37 days and how you've gotten to this place, you know, seven years later, like with the relaunching okay. of your um, your blog, and then we'll go into the ordinary to the extraordinary. Okay. Well, stop me if I'm running on too long, but I'm happy to talk about the genesis of the work that I'm doing now. really started, as you said with this 37-day experience, and it really literally was on day 38 that I woke up and I asked myself that question, what would I be doing today? And we don't know when day one is coming, and we don't know when day 37 is coming. So I felt a great sense of urgency about really answering that question. At that time, I was doing a lot of corporate work. I had written two business books that were really well-received but didn't engender a lot of energy on my part in terms of my reaction to them. I didn't feel connected to them in any significant way. And that was really good information for me. And when I woke up on day 38 and asked myself that question, I knew really, really clearly there were two answers. One, I wanted to write down everything that I wanted to remember and I wanted my kids to know about me so that when I do die, um, they will have a bigger picture of me than just the mom me. I wanted them to know me as a really 
um, human person, full of fears and vulnerabilities and successes and things that I feel really proud of, as well as things that I failed at. I just wanted to tell my stories so that they would know me uh, in a deeper way. And I felt a great sense of urgency about starting that writing. So that became my blog, 37 Days. And it was really stories from my life to them. And I kept them in a three-ring, I would print them out, kept them in a three-ring notebook, and that was going to be my, sort of, what I left behind for them. And the other uh, answer to that question was that I didn't want to be the person who um, tomorrow is told it's day one and suddenly has a lot of regrets. I didn't want to get to that point, whenever that is, and have a great sense of fear or regret that I didn't do what I wanted to do. I didn't want to, at that point, say, um, now I want to see the world, and now I want to make amends, and you know all the things that we think of on our deathbed. I didn't want that. I wanted to be the person who, when given that news, or when that happens to me, can feel a sense of, satisfaction and say to myself, right, this is exactly the life that I wanted to live. And I knew in an instant, in that moment, in that bed on day 38, the day after my stepfather died, that my life needed to change significantly for that to happen. I had been sort of play acting a little bit. I knew that I was really good at my job and really good at writing business books. But it wasn't really me in some way. It was kind of an out-of-body experience. I don't know how else to describe that. I just didn't feel like it was fully connected. I knew how to play that role, I guess. It was a role that I was playing really, really well. And when you play a role really well, you get rewarded for it. And you don't stop often to say, wait a minute, is this really my role? Or am I playing something? So that whole experience was a turning point in my life. Since that time, uh, two years after I started the blog, a publisher came to me and said, you know, we've been reading your blog for two years, and we'd love to make a book. And A Life is a Verb was the first of a series of four books that had been published by that publisher, really using the writing on the blog as a catalyst. And I'm writing another book now for them called The Geography of Loss, which I'm really um, connected to in a deep way, this conversation about grief and the kind of grief that we walk away from or deny and how to walk more closely into it. Um, so you mentioned the launch. I, I, over the last year, really sat back and said, well, have I lost myself again in this role of author? And how do I step back from that to be a writer again? How do I clear space and clear ground to really get back to that sense of urgency with which I started 37 Days? And so I'm kind of clearing ground. My new website launched yesterday with a great online party that was um, really so much fun and so gratifying for me to have such an amazing group of people gathered and chatting all at the same time online. And that is a space that is um, wide open for me as a canvas to start writing again on. How exciting. So now when you look at your life, do you, when you look at your day in your life, do you think that you are living exactly the life you wanted to live? I am. And the place where I'm not has been this conversation with myself um, about traveling too much. So a lot of what I talked about last night was the recognition that I want to step back and stay home. Um, 
I told the story last night, and it really is a compelling one for me, that when Emma, my oldest, she's 19 now, but when she was three or four years old, I was doing a lot of international work. And so when I went on a trip, I was gone for a couple of weeks, and I came back from a very long trip, and little Emma climbed in the bed with me, and she said, this was 1995 or 96, she said, I had a lot of dreams when you were when you were gone. And I said, well, what did you dream about? She said, I dreamed I was a little tiny fish in a big, big ocean, and I couldn't find my mommy. And I think we get these messages that we don't hear or we don't pay attention to, and that one was so startling to me. Um, I quit my job because I thought, you know, I am out saving the world, and I'm leaving this child to not know where I am, and this is my job. So I reconfigured my life at that point to to be there to walk home from school with her, to um, be there for play dates and sleepovers, and so I just reconfigured how I was living my life. I would fast forward, and she has a little sister, Tess, who's now eight years old, and I was in that same sort of travel mode again, and it's become really, really clear to me over the last couple of months that Tess needs me to be home. So part of the launch for me was to say, okay, really, I love going out, I love meeting people, I love engaging and teaching and um, learning when I travel, and really my work at this point in my life is here. So the launch was my kind of statement to myself, these are my boundaries, this is my new my new way of operating in the world, my new way of really sustaining myself so that I can create the space to write again. Um, so that's kind of where I am right now. I'm in that process of reorienting um, and really becoming extremely clear about that priority. The priority for me now is to be a mother to my children. And doing that will allow me to open up space to do the writing that I love so much again as well. So I'm very, very excited about that. So, Patty, when you did this launch, was this kind of a way to help you by make, you know, publicly making these commitments, putting these boundaries out there, a way for you to be accountable to yourself? I think both. You know, when I started 37 Days, I literally, the first one that I wrote, I sent it to 12 friends, and I said, if you don't get this by Monday, every Monday at noon, you don't have to read it, you don't have to comment on the content, but just email me and say, where is it? because I needed an external accountability. And the reason that you laugh, <laughs> I knew myself enough to know that it, like every other New Year's resolution, would just fall off the table if I didn't have people really hounding me for it. And they did. And they sent it to other friends and other friends. And, you know, within six months, there were 10,000 people reading this blog, which was so beautiful to me. I'd love to think it was because my stories were so compelling, but I think it was that we all have a need for our lives to have more meaning on a daily basis, and people were resonating with that part of what I was finding about my life. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, and don't you think, I mean, for me, I look at it as uh, deadlines, right? Every Friday I have an interview, and so mm -hmm. I, have to, I have to get it done. I have to get my work done. I have to be prepared. And mm -hmm. versus, well, that other book that I may want to read will sit there because right. there's not that actual deadline. You know, and yeah, it's I, I think we, yeah, we assume that structure is a bad thing. We want to be artists. We want to be creative. We want to be 
uh, free in the world to follow the thread that intrigues us. And I think that's really fantastic, and that's part of what I am really examining for myself. But I think the structure, though we've come to believe that writers or artists or people who are creating things in the world need a wide open space, I think they also need a very clear structure, and that's really what I'm rebuilding for myself. I think I lost that that thread over the last couple of years. Um, so I love that. That I resonate with that because I think Friday is an artificial construct, but it's an important one. You know, it's an important one to move the process forward. And um, I don't think there's anything wrong with having that kind of external accountability for moving the process forward. Where I think we we falter sometimes is writing to the audience then, you know, so that I lose the thread of what I long to say with my life. I begin to write what you want to read. And I think that, for me, the warning sign goes up and I I say to myself, uh, I need to step back and really look at what is the message I have to say with my life and how do I put that into the world and move to the next message rather than constantly canvassing to see who's buying what, who wants what. Um, <laughs> I think that's a really important part of the equation as well. You know, um, when, when I think of stuff like that, I think about, you know, Henry Ford, and if he had gone out and surveyed people about, <laughs> you know, what they wanted next, they would have wanted a faster horse, right? Mm-hmm. Who, who, an automobile, what's that? Or even 15 yeah. years ago, somebody said, oh, we have these iPhones, that can do this. Exactly. We, we said, well, why do we need that, right? Exactly, yeah. And and then um, I have this huge swimming history, and um, I was a competitive swimmer for 15 years and an athletic sw- co- swim coach. And one of the things that I've come to the realization is that it's everything you always wanted as a parent but never mm-hmm. knew, you know, mm-hmm. and to be a part of that that kind of experience. And it's it's like its own tribe to be on a swim team. And it's, it's all the things that you want for your child. But, and I even think about my mom, she just wanted me to swim. She didn't know that all this other stuff was going to happen and I was going to be a national champ. That wasn't on the horizon, right? It was, my mom wanted me to be water safe. And, and then all the stuff that I got from it, the, the self-confidence, the learning how to go through struggle, the learning how to fall down and come back, you know, learning how to work with a team, all different things came out of being a part of that experience. So that survey thing, you know, I struggle with it too, is what, and, and a listener emailed me the other day and she said, thank you so much for your show. And she said, I, even though there may be people on your show that I've never heard about or didn't understand how it can intertwine in my life, mm-hmm. I get so much value from what they have to say. And the takeaways mm-hmm. help me connect it to my life. You yeah, know? you can't know what you don't know. Yeah that way and and the, a, a sideline to what you just said is I just had my first swim lesson last week yay yeah so I'm coming to train with you <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah, here's how I see the world I signed up for an iron girl triathlon uh-huh. because it sounded like a lot of fun you know wouldn't uh-huh. that be fun a no. lot of iron girls and then I realized I don't know how to run I don't run I don't know how to bike I have an old swim that's mm-hmm. 1965 three years, you know, is my bike, so I don't bike, and I don't know how to swim, Mm -hmm. so I thought, oh, you know, I should probably take swim lessons, Mm -hmm. so I'll let you know how that goes. Yes, keep, and, and, 
And, and one of the things, because I work with adults in swimming, and one of the big concerns is how they look in a swimsuit, right? And my thing I've always told uh, the adults is nobody's really concerned about how you look because they're so worried about how they look that they're just yeah. wrapped up in themselves. <laughs> so just show up. And then once you get in the water, you're in the water. Nobody's paying attention because they're trying not to drown, <laughs> right? It's a long walk from the side to the pool, though, <laughs> let me just tell you. And I have a lot of bathing suit anxiety that I'm working on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but everybody oh, else man. does too. So it, when you when because it, it's incredible because when I used to teach at the college and I taught swimming and fitness for adults, and that was always an issue, and they would want to wear all these extra clothes. And I said, look, that's not going to help you. You you want to improve fitness and you want to learn how to swim better technique. So those wearing yeah. clothing in the pool is going to detract from the result that you're looking mm-hmm. for, right? Yeah. And um, it's good for me to hear. I'm happy we're having this conversation. <laughs> But I, and I think with anything in life, we, we get, that's how we get in our own way, right? We get yeah. so worried about how it, you know, some of our fears. And so, and it just takes little steps. So Yeah, it does. It was a big step, actually, um, all kidding aside, for me to go to that class. So I understand the, the step at a time mm-hmm. um, process for folks. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I haven't seen this movie, but somebody was telling me about it, but the movie We Bought a Zoo... And, uh, oh, I really want to see that. I saw the trailer. Well, in the 20 Seconds of Courage, have you heard that? There's a, mm-hmm. I'll, se- I'll, send it, I'll send you the link, but I sent it out to my newsletter subscribers last week, and it's uh, 20 Seconds of Insane Courage can bring extraordinary results. Oh, wow. Right? And those, that 20 seconds when you finally said, okay, I'm going to sign up, even though it may scare you, right? Yeah. The things that it can open up to you, can you just... It's just amazing. So. Anyway. Oh, it is. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'd love to see that. I'll send that. I, to I mean, I can understand that. I see it in my own life. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a lot of ways. This is Crimeoticitis, and Patty Dye, author of six books, including bestsellers "Life Is a Verb" and "Creative Is a Verb," is here with us on how she really does it with Crimeoticitis. So, Patty, I have a question for you. As you've gone through and made these changes for this coming year, in creating that space. Did you have any fears that came up of, okay, I'm not going to travel as much and I'm going to change my business structure to this way? Um, fears. I don't know that I had fear about it. I was really clear about the motivation for it, so I knew exactly what the intention was. There wasn't any, um, and there still isn't any ambiguity about that for me, and I think that for me is the important part. To really understand, this is my single intention. This is my my sort of path, and what I needed help with, and what I've gotten amazing help with um, from a number of of colleagues and people I've hired to be on my team is really the how to do that. Mm-hmm. But the path itself was really clear to me, and I just knew that um, I needed to make the change, and this was why. And there was no bargaining around that. I needed to be here for tests. So, so that part, I think knowing that he's made that end result, um, what it was, I, why I was doing this became uh, a, a real motivator for figuring out the how to get there. You know, there's always fear. I make my money when I travel. Mm-hmm. You know, I support myself by, by traveling out into the world and doing work. So from that perspective, from a, you know, from a business perspective or financial perspective, 
um, sure, I'm flinging myself into to the space between monkey bars, and I don't know, you know, what the other space is, but I do know that it's worth it, whatever that process is for me. Um, there's just no negotiating the fact that I'm going to do this. So, so that's been really powerful for me to recognize. I told in the after party last night from the launch party, we were people were asking questions. We were just chatting, and I told the story of when Emma was in elementary school, like Tess is now. I, I was offered the most amazing job. It was a job that I I wanted so badly. Uh, executive director of this nonprofit organization that was doing amazing work around racism, and I really knew that I had something to offer. And the only thing I asked from that employer was, you know, the board, I need to be gone from 2.30 to 3.30 every day because I want to go pick Emma up at elementary school and walk home with her. I want her to know that I'm there to walk her home. And they said no. And I didn't take the job because I had set the, the boundary. And the boundary for me was I want to have the opportunity and I want to be there to walk this child home from school. It sounds maybe silly in a way, but that was really important to me. Truthfully, I don't know if Emma remembers that I walked her home from school every day, but I remember that I did. And that moment in time where, you know, you set the boundary and you, you stick to that boundary even when the stakes are really high, that's the moment when you know this is powerful and this is, this is what I want to do in the world more than anything, to be there for this child. And that's the moment that I'm at right now. So I feel really clear about that. You know, um, if I can use this as an example, because one of the things that I talk with a lot with my clients about is about three types of business. There's your business, there's my business. Some people call it the universe or God. I usually teach it as the weather, so we don't have to have you know detractions, <laughs> right? Because there, there's always the weather, and and people get really upset or engaged about the weather, but we can't do anything about the weather because that's the weather's mm -hmm. business. So we can complain or we can, you know, people tend to do that in where I live when it's hot, but we know it's going to be hot because that's the geography we live in. But, um, mm -hmm. but you know, trying to complain it or change it is only going to create insanity for us because we can't do anything. We cannot control the weather. And that's really the same of about trying to control other people, right? We think other people should sure. do this or shouldn't do that, especially during the holidays. People should do act this way. They shouldn't act that way. Well, that's like trying to change the weather. We really can't control them. And, um, mm -hmm. and when you're trying to, when you're in other people's business or you're in the weather's business, there's nobody taking care of your own business and taking care of your own business is a full-time job. And so <laughs> sometimes, so sometimes my clients come back and go, but that's really selfish, you know, taking care of my business. And I was trying to explain to one of my groups this morning was that actually when you take care of your business, you have a way to give more to your, um, you know, to the people. And so your example of wanting to walk home with your daughter, that was you taking care of your business, right? Because mm -hmm. that was important to you. But then you were, it wasn't, you were off in the world, right? You were being there with her. And I think that's a great, another great example for people to know that the difference between being selfish and taking care of your business. So. Yeah, I love that analogy. I especially like the weather part. <laughs> you know, I talk a lot about the fact that you can't control the circumstances around you. Mm -hmm. you. You know, tsunamis happen, economies falter, wars occur, people die that you love, and 
so the circumstances are the weather in your in your example. We can't change that. But what I can always control is my response to the circumstance. Mm-hmm. So how I am in that circumstance is completely under my control. We may believe it's not. We may believe that we're victims to the circumstance, but we aren't. We never are. So I can, you know, I can choose to be happy in the worst of circumstances if that's the choice that I make. Or I can choose, as you said, to, to blame the weather or to talk about the weather. Um, so I'm either, every day in the story I tell myself about myself, I'm, I'm either telling a story of a victim or I'm telling the story of somebody who's making choices. You know, it's, it's so easy to, to, to play victim in ways that we don't know. When I say I have to do something, that's kind of victim language. I don't have to. I'm choosing to do that or I'm choosing not to. So to really look at that, you know, that language and that story that we tell becomes very powerful. Um, it would have been easy for me to say, I have to take this job. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to, but I didn't have to. And those boundaries become really, really important. What is at stake becomes a really big question for me. And what is non-negotiable becomes a big question for me. And when you when you ask yourself those questions, do the answers come right away? Well, I don't think they do. I mean, I think that's why we muddle around, don't we, for a long time, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we figure it out, you know. And I, I feel in in some ways like I'm I'm reinventing the wheel here with with Tess. I mean, luckily I have another opportunity. You know, there's such a gap between these two girls that maybe I forgot the lesson the first time I, I learned it from from Emma and her little tiny fishies in the bed with me. You know, then I got busy again, and the. The, you know, we, we fall prey and fall victim to this incredible, exhausting striving that happens around us, both in our personal lives and online. And it's easy to get swept up in it, to want to be hip or popular or well, you know, read by people. And to really step back from that and say, well, wait a minute, I need to reorient here. That's, um, that's where I am right now, is well, reorientation. And that, and that popular, right, how many friends do I have posting or, you know, how many Facebook friends or the retweeting or it's so easy to get caught up in that and then you're not with the people right next to you. Exactly. You know, I, exactly right. as we were going into this interview, I kept thinking about um, my holidays and I planned out taking 10 days off, I think, from like Thursday before Christmas until after, until the third, until Tuesday this week. And, um, and I really protected that time and, and set those boundaries and it was really important to me. And then I, there was a part of me that was thinking, oh, well, we should go to the city or we should go to the snow, you know, like all these glamorous different things to do. And, and, and we went hiking one day as a family and that's always fun because it gets us out of technology, gets me out of technology. And then we went ice skating another day. But other than that, we really just kind of hold up at home. And when people would ask me, you know, how was your, you know, winter break? And I said, oh my gosh, it was wonderful. And a lot of people thought I had this really extravagant, extraordinary break in the, in the idea of the media. I think I had the extraordinary in the ordinary, you know, and it was in the, we ate dinner together all as a family at one time, 
or, you know, we played a lot of games or we watched some family movies or, you know, we just kind of hung out and read our books and we were in the same space, but, you know, mm -hmm. or we cleaned out drawers, whatever it was that we did, but it was that I made a real intention with the holidays of I wanted to connect with family and some friends and, and really more with that. the family. I love that. That's so beautiful to me. Yeah. And that it really is finding the extraordinary in the ordinary. You know, I feel it now with Emma coming home from college. It's just this this really fantastic experience of having her home, which we don't do that much. You know, we're not out doing things all the time. We're sitting in the same room watching something on TV or mm -hmm. watching a movie. And it's just this really beautiful way of looking at everyday life as, the extraordinary thing that we have and we take for granted too much. Well, yeah, because I would, I would sometimes, I could tell my subconscious would say, well, Corinne, you should take them, you should go out, you should go do something. And I'd go, well, what could we go do? Well, that would entail shopping. Hmm, yeah. do I want to shop? No. And I, I particularly don't like to shop. I was like, no. And I, and I look back at, you know, maybe 10 years ago, a large part of my life was like that because I thought that was kind of the thing to do. And I don't like to shop. <laughs> so. Well, I think we, we, we deflect from ourselves in a lot of different ways, don't we? You know, we keep ourselves very, very busy. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think we do that not to sit with ourselves mm -hmm. or to be present to the moment that's in front of us. And I'm, I fall as prey to this as anyone else does, you know. Um, but I wonder what that fear is about. You know, if I sit too long and I really am silent with myself, what happens? And uh, I'm looking um, to my friend Susan Piper to help me with meditation this year for the very reason. I joked with her. We did a retreat together, and she asked the group to write on a piece of paper, how long do you believe you can meditate each day? And everybody wrote something down. And then she said, add one minute to that. And I went up to her afterwards, and I said, well, I'm at one minute now. <laughs> so, you know, what is it that keeps us from that, that being present with ourselves? Like, why do we distract ourselves constantly and deflect constantly? And I think that's a big conversation for me in this coming year. Yeah, I know for me, because taking that 10 days off was very challenging, because I was, I've always been a striver and a doer and let me just grind it out more and work harder. And um, I've, through the past few years, I've learning that um, having, creating that space just also allows more creativity. And I yeah, get re-energized, right? But before I used to measure on how much I was putting out, right? How can I measure mm -hmm. things? And how do you measure creating space? It's, it's kind of hard because it's not tangible. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think most of the things that have meaning in our lives are the intangibles. Mm -hmm. And yet we, you know, we speak the business of language. So what's the return on investment of love? Well, how do, you, how do you talk about that? But I think, you know, this experience with death and the writing that I'm doing now around grief really says to me, you know what, look, at the end of all of it, love is the only thing that's left. I know that to be true. And, and yet love... And, and relationship is not something that I can ever quantify. It just doesn't fit into that box. And my response to that is, maybe the box is wrong. You know, let's just step back. Maybe there's a different balance sheet. Why try and cram this stuff into a balance sheet that's really built on a return invest, uh, uh, on investment and a material, tangible kind of value? That's not the right... I think we've, we've 
miss the boat, we're asking the wrong question. So what is the new balance sheet that would say, you know, I want to measure my life in how kind I am and how generous mm-hmm. I am and how loving I am rather than uh, how much I make. Traditional, yeah, it's traditional success. I said last night one of the things I said was, you know, let's focus on significance and not success because there's a difference between those two things. So has my life made a difference in the world? Have I had some sort of, have I, you know, risked my significance in the world? I hope so. Um, You know, just like the boundary with Emma and walking her home from school, I think creating that kind of accounting for yourself um, is important, too, where you really recognize, if I'm kind and generous and I've made a difference to my girls, that's a good life for me. What is the measure of that success for me? And for me, it always has to do with significance. You know, there, there are three questions that I have tattooed on my arm, and they're questions from Buddha. Um, how well did you love? How fully did you live? And how deeply did you let go? And I would add, add a fourth one, and that is, did you make a difference? Um, that has significance. That's not a traditional measure of success. You're not going to find that on a profit and loss statement. Mm-hmm. And I think that's okay. You know, I think we, we, we need to reorient what we're measuring and how we're accounting for ourselves in the world. Well, and, and don't you find, I mean, I know I find this, um, that a lot of this, uh, there was this, or there still is this chase for money or title because we thought we would be safe or we thought we'd be happy. And then you get mm-hmm. that money or that title and you go, and I used to call it the lie, right? You're, you're, I remember me, I'm 39, so as a, as a young child, I was always told, you need to be a good girl, you need to do really well, you need to get really good grades, you know, you're a gifted kid, all the stuff, you need to get good grades, you can get a good school, so you can get a good job, and then you're, and then it was always kind of like with the premise of, then you're going to be happy, and I wound up being 25, totally fast-tracked, was, you know, on a tenure-track position at a college, you know, tenured at 29, and going, but I'm not happy. I have all those things that I was told that I would be happy with, and I'm not happy. Right. In well, I think that's a, you know, somebody said to me, knowing what you know now, is there anything that you could say that would save people from this, you know, walk in the wilderness <laughs> for so many years? Because I did the same thing, you know, very successful career, very quick, moving up in organizations, uh, building big organizations, and feeling completely disembodied and disconnected from the work. And yet I thought that was what I had to do. And I was good at it, so that was also very seductive. And Mm -hmm. I said to the person, no, I I can't save people from the walk through the wilderness because there's something that um, a physicist von Helmholtz talks about, the royal road. When When you're hiking or climbing, you're going, you're zigzagging up the mountain, right? You're, you're not going in a straight line. You're going around and back and forth and getting to the top. But when you're at the top of the mountain, you see a straight line to where you started from, right? And so you think it's a straight line. I mean, that's what people imagine. Like, there's this straight track, and you you have to kind of wander back and forth. And he calls that the royal road. There's no royal road. It's, it's you know, it's navigating these circumstances, and it's really embracing the things that feel like setbacks or places on the trail that are blocked or, you know, trees have fallen over them. I talked last night about the fact that, you know,
know, we avoid obstacles in our lives, but mm-hmm. obstacles move the story forward. So Little Red Riding Hood is not so interesting a story unless you have the wolf. So we, we want to minimize the wolf. We want to put the wolf far away from us, and the wolf is the thing that really gets the story going. So how do we begin to walk with the wolf, you know, and really embrace the stuff that seem like setbacks? that are really the catalyst for us moving forward and zigging and zagging, and you can't save people from that. You know, you shouldn't. They, you know, we each have a path that we wander. And to really embrace the dark part of that path, I think, is, well, it's, it's a core part of the book that I'm working on now, this idea of navigating a, a personal geography around loss and grief without negating it and without... Um, doing what I think people do in a, a really kind-hearted way, which is to say, feel better. My friend Nina died two years ago, and she's actually represented on the tattoo that I was just mentioning, because it was a significant loss for me and a significant process um, to walk with her through. And and when she died a couple of days later, people were saying, well, you know, I hope you feel better. And I wrote on Facebook a note that said, I'm okay sobbing. Mm-hmm. I'm okay feeling enormous gut-wrenching loss. I'm okay with that. I don't want to feel better. I want to work through the process. I want to do the zigs and the zags and really navigate it. And that is so uncomfortable for us as a culture, especially this culture. Mm-hmm. But I think we step so far away from that. So we want the royal road, don't we? We want it to mm-hmm. be clean and neat, and we want six-minute abs, and <laughs> yep. we want to be a millionaire tomorrow, and, you know, the pain and the obstacle and the wolf is all a really important part of it. There's no story without that. So I think that's that's been an important thing for me to navigate with and really walk into. Well, and it's, you know, it's a process, and I think we've mm-hmm. really, and the reason the show is an hour long is to show that overnight success that we hear about all the time it takes mm-hmm. it's a process nobody nobody makes this overnight success in 24 hours or in a year it's a process and it's about showing up and practicing and even mm-hmm. with the swimming you, you you show up and you keep practicing and you're going to get better you just do yeah and um but that process is so hard in this in our culture and i think because we've been fed or we choose to believe that oh well they they rose to fame so quickly and that was so easy for them right it and it takes a lot of work i mean even talented athletes they work hard you know and and so what you said it's a daily practice you know it's a daily practice it's like me saying i want to write a book or people writing to me after life is a verb came out and saying i want to write a book too and my answer my question was always are you writing Mm -hmm. well no you know and Books don't come fully formed out of your forehead. They they actually take incremental daily practice, and practice is the operative word. And yet, you know, I'm not sure that we're we're willing to put that in. Or maybe it's just that the intention is not clear for us. That's what I said earlier. That if I felt such urge such urgency about writing these stories for my girls, I didn't have you in mind. I didn't have any other reader in mind. I just had these two girls that I felt so really anxious about leaving these stories behind that I was driven to do that. And I think we have to find that thing for ourselves. We have to say to ourselves, what do I long to say with my life? 
what do I long to say with my life and how am I going to say that? I don't have to write it. I could do it in terms of the work I do in the world, in terms of how I parent. But what is it that I long to say? And that drives us in a way that an intellectual conversation about that won't or a, a business plan. You know, I talk a lot in the work that I do in organizations. Um, just imagine that there are three different kinds of problems. So the first one is a simple problem. I want to bake a cake. I have a recipe, an apron, the ingredients, an oven. I can do that. It's simple. The second one is a moon launch, as an example. It's a complicated problem. So the first one's a simple problem. A complicated problem has a lot more moving parts. I need a lot more Excel spreadsheets. I probably need to hire mathematicians and scientists. But it's doable. I can make a 300-page strategic plan and do that thing. And the third kind of problem is a complex problem. A complex problem is raising a child. A complex problem is finding more meaning in your life. Those things are not done with more math or Excel <laughs> spreadsheets. A 200-page strategic plan will not help you do that. And I think where we get confused and where we kind of beat ourselves up and we can't move forward is that we believe that those things are just complicated. If I just buy enough books, if I just have enough plans, if I just do X, Y, and Z that people are telling me I should do, then I will have meaning in my life. Then I will know how to raise a child. And they just don't fit into that complicated model. So to com confuse what is complex with being merely complicated not only doesn't help us step into the complexity of it, but it actually sort of fools us and confuses us to think that it's just complicated to begin with. Does that make sense to you? That that, that sort of distinction, I think, is a really valuable one for us to keep in mind. No, and I, and I really like that. I've never heard of it in that way. So, Patty, I have a question. So, with a complex, is that, because I call, um, I'm trying to think of, in the language that I use, I talk a lot about living in the gray area or having an agile brain, right? It's not that there's rights okay. or wrongs, right? It's, 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 like, for instance, let's go with something tangible like food. A lot of people like diets because they're told these are the good foods, these are the bad foods. One of the things that when I work with my clients is about learning you going inside and learning what feels good for your body. Right. And so that... Yeah, it's a very... Right. It's not a prescription. So it's not, not a prescription. A, yeah, there's no prescription for it. No um, amount of, of instruction will help me know how to, to raise a child. Mm -hmm. It might give me tools, mm -hmm. but there's a complexity about that that... The other thing I would mention is that complexities are things that we walk toward in very simple ways. They're not complicated in the, in the sense that I need to have lots of ammunition, you know, to really get at this. So complexities, because we're so reared in this culture in particular, to think that the more complex it is in terms of the steps that I have to take, the more valuable it is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for me, raising a child is walking home from school with Emma. I'll use that example again. That's not a plan. That's not a strategy. That's a simple action. That's really looking at this child and saying to myself, what is the quality of the relationship between us? What is the quality of the engagement that we have on a daily basis? So that's not a, a to-do item. That's mm -hmm. not a strategic plan. That's really a very simple action that I take on a daily basis. That's a simple daily practice. That's a, a moving toward somebody in a different way. 
that you won't find on a checklist necessarily. But, but those kinds of very simple actions are the things that help you walk toward that complexity. This is Karen Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It. I am talking with Patty Dye. She is the author of six books, including bestsellers, Life is a Verb, and Creative is a Verb. And she also has a new blog at 37days.com. So, Patty, when we're talking about, um, you know, these choices and, and you're talking about how it's not a strategy and how it's, it's really kind of answering the question of what is the quality of the relationship between us? I mean, that walk home, isn't that part of the extraordinary that is really just ordinary? Oh, for sure. You know, I think um, we've, we've fallen prey to this idea that we have to do great big things in order for our lives to have significance. And, you know, there's so many lessons that I've learned from my kids and I've learned from other people about how to celebrate what are very simple moments, very simple actions. Um, in Life is a Verb, I tell the story, and it's still so moving to me, of a woman who was actually on the Oprah show a number of times as she died of cancer. She was a young woman mm-hmm. with two young kids, and she decided to videotape messages for these kids to have after she was gone. What would she like them to know? You know, how to know when you're in love, how to steam an artichoke. They ran the gamut of things. Imagine trying to figure out what what would you leave behind, which was really the process I was following for 37 days. And they took them on all these trips, you know, to swim with dolphins and all kinds of places. And after she died, the the father and the two young kids came back on Oprah, and Oprah asked a question of the kids that I'm sure what she thought the answer would be about swimming with dolphins or something huge. She said, what is one of your favorite memories of your mother? And I will never forget what the little girl said. She said, I remember one time when my mom asked me to get her a bowl of Cheerios, and we ate them together. (sighs) And that took my breath away, because that is what we all remember. Think about, mm-hmm. my dad died in 1980, so he's been dead a long time, and I miss him. He's really the kind of um, center point of my work in a lot of ways, that that message that I got about how short life is. And I'm coming up to my birthday next year, which will be the same age he was when he died, and so there's a lot in my in my world right now that's reminding me of that message. And The things that I can tell you about my dad are very small actions, but I'm sure at the time he was not in any way aware that that is what I would remember 31 years later. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That, you know, like the little girl with the bowl of Cheerios. And so I really got from that story, from my own story, that it is walking home from school. It is showing up, you know, with um, a, a favorite book or a favorite snack after school for Tess now. It is taking the time to go with her to have, you know, our, our toenails painted or whatever it is that we're doing to really try and engage with not who she is and who I am, but what is that, what is the space between us? What does that look like? What does that feel like? And how can I really make that as rich and full and meaningful and significant for both of us as I possibly can? And I think that is of everybody that I meet, you know, what is the quality of that engagement? Um, and that has meaning to me, you know, that has resonance for me. So I think that question of 
significant, we need to really think about that in the smallest of terms. Not necessarily have I changed the world, but have I improved and enlightened and enriched the lives of the people I love most and the people around me. Well, Patty, isn't that how we change the world when we work with those connections <laughs> that, that we have? It's a beautiful question. I think it is, actually. I do believe it is. Um, you know, I've been really humbled over the last couple of years because I was unprepared, and I said this last night, too, because it was so clear to me. Somebody asked the question about, about did I have any idea that my writing was going to have this impact, and I can so honestly say I had no idea. And I, at the very beginning, I was getting so many emails from people saying, this book changed my life, and I couldn't even step into that. You know, I was so moved by it. And, and what I knew really clearly was that the book didn't do that, that people were coming across this writing and these stories at a time when it had resonance for them and when they could actually hear it and see what it meant for their own lives. That having been said, it has um, really taught me to be able to step at least a little bit into the place of knowing that I'm opening up space for myself to, to tell my stories, but I'm also recognizing more and more that a part of my work in the world is to open up space for other people to tell their own stories, whether in writing or how they live in the world or the choices that they're making or making art, for example. Um, so I do believe that's how you change the world. I love that reflection. Thank you. What, why are stories so important? Um, you know, Jerome Bruner has said that we make meaning of our lives through story, and I think that's really true. We, we believe that we're made up of atoms, but we're actually made up of stories. Um, a story is the, the sort of primal beginning point of how we make meaning in the world. We are constantly storying ourselves. I have a, a bumper sticker on my on my car that's I think about to fall off now, but it says the, the shortest distance between two people is the story. So once I've heard your story, I can't not have heard it. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. I know a deeper part of you than just your name and your title. So if we can get people to start sharing the story that they're telling and have them hear it. You know, I tell myself stories all the time that I sit back and go, really? Am I telling myself that story that I can't do that? Mm -hmm. Am I telling myself the story that I can't do an Iron Girl just because I don't swim, run, or bike? <laughs> <laughs> you know, why am I telling me that, myself that story? I can do that. So um, to really recognize that we're constantly storing everything that's happening around us um, is a powerful act of creation. People say to me, I'm not creative. Creative as a verb has as its subtitle. If you're alive, you're creative, because I really believe that. But we've talked ourselves into the story of, oh, I'm not creative, I'm not an artist, I can't mm -hmm. really write. Um, those are stories that we're telling ourselves. Those are not realities. They're, they're, they're what we, we're storing for ourselves constantly. I used to think that. My mom used to, because my mom was a you know, painter and sews and does all sorts of stuff. And my mom used to laugh at me and say, well, you're not creative. And so I carried that uh, story around for a long time until somebody oh, sure. said, really? You're not creative. Think of the work that you do. And, um, and now I realize that, you, that there is an art to everything that I do. It just may not be drawing, right? Exactly. Um, 
even how to put together an interview or how to teach somebody how to swim, there's an art form that comes from that. And Absolutely. So, yeah. you know, letting go of that story has created the space for me to, to move forward more with the work that I do. Um, yeah, I think in, in creative pursuit, there's no bar that you have to reach in order to say. I used to never be able to say to people, I'm a writer, until somebody reflected to me, well, you've written six books and hundreds of articles. Like, at what point <laughs> would you be able to say that? You know, um, plumbers don't have any problem saying, I'm a plumber. Uh, doctors don't have any problem saying they're a doctor. So what's the holdup? And it was really the story that I was telling myself about what real writers are and that I wasn't that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm a slow learner, but I do get there eventually. <laughs> no, and I am too, and I, I have a tendency to get in my own way about things, but I do get there. Mm -hmm. um, and as we go, as we wrap up the show, what are a couple of takeaways that listeners can take to practice living extraordinary in their own life? Not creating, you know, not thinking they have to go create something new, but what they can do in their life that they have today. Oh, gosh, this just occurred to me because I'm looking at my china cabinet. Get out your good china and use it when you eat dinner because we save it and we save it and we save it. And, and life itself is the special occasion. So get the china out and make these extraordinary offers when you cook dinner on the china. I mean, it's, there are very simple ways to, to do that. The thing that has made me really recognize what is extraordinary um, in ordinary life is uh, taking a photo every day and writing a short story about it. Not a story, but a short paragraph about it. Um, to really remember that day in an image and a short reflection. And it's a very simple thing. I actually am doing it as a project with two friends on a blog, 3 by 3 mm -hmm. by 365 But I'm not advocating that for everyone. Just do it for yourself. Um, I started a blog uh, for my youngest daughter, Tess, who really has a need to share what's going on inside of her with the world. And for her, it's become a space for her to gather her thoughts every day. By recognizing uh, the fact that you're going to do that every day, you, you by default start paying attention. And when you start paying attention, there's a reason to always carry with you birthday candles in your purse because <laughs> there's something to celebrate. And I do this. You know, I... It's, it's fantastic to know that there are many, many people around the world who are now carrying birthday candles in their purse. Look for things to celebrate, and you will actually find them. I promise that you will. Oh, I love that. Patty, thank you so much for being a guest today. What a pleasure. I just want to say thank you to you and, and just offer my deep, deep love for the work that you're doing in the world. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. This is Karen Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It with Karen Motokaitis. And my guest today was Patty Dye of 37days.com. You can sign up for my newsletter and have each interview delivered directly to your inbox at www.howshereallydoesit.com. Early morning, fog is lifting. She's in a row.
saves her money, grabs her backpack, hops a jet plane, heads to France, grows a garden, writes a screen.